The following sermon is presented by Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. It's good to have the privilege of speaking this morning, and we're going to be looking at a text today that, quite frankly, we just don't see too many things on, especially in the light of how we're going to approach it today. But you know, as I progress in life, I get irritated very quickly with certain things, as many of you might be aware of. Uh, But, you know, one of the things that really frustrate me is when I see individuals that basically profess to know Christ, and what they do is they have belief structures that that are really contrary to God's Word, but then what they do is they take a passage of God's Word, yank it out of the context, and use it in a way with the intentional purposes, in my view, of shutting us up so that we do not question them on their behavior, their lifestyle, or things that they believe one should be able to do. There's certain issues that tend to not go away within, within our, 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 our structure of society today. And as a result, whenever it's brought up, it always elicits a lot of debate. And one of those areas is along the lines of homosexual rights and things of that nature. But all the way back in 1994, I cut out a letter or a letter to the editor from a, uh, a newspaper where this individual was trying to defend this situation and then uses the Bible verse with the purpose of quieting us. But this individual said, contrary to the assertions in a recent column, constitutional rights are routinely denied lesbians and gay men who at any time without warning can and do lose their jobs, homes, credit, and children solely because of their sexual orientation. I know this firsthand because I am risking my job by writing this letter. I did not choose to be homosexual. It's the way I was born. As a Christian, I work hard on not judging others and take seriously Christ's teaching to let him who is without sin cast the first stone. So what does this individual do? First off, he admits that he has a belief structure that is contrary to God's word, professes to know Christ, and then says, who do you think you are judging me? Because Christ himself said, let him who is without sin cast the stone. Who do you think you are? I also do some online teaching. And one of the things that's unique about this, you know, when I do the online teaching, I log into the classroom. It's all, you know, through the computer. And when you, when you log in, there's, uh, there's a certain area where it's now 200 plus thousand students who basically can comment on anything, uh, on any subject. And I tend to not read it because I find it a colossal waste of time. But, <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> there was a subject matter brought up again, again just recently, 20 years later now after this letter was written, uh, along the lines of the Defense of Marriage Act. And there was just something that cost my that caught my eye there and I said okay I got to read what this individual stated this individual states this everyone talks about God and how God judges so who judges God one might ask now my friends that's blasphemy as far as I'm concerned who do you think you are as the creation thinking you have the right to sit in judgment on the creator who are you kidding I'm glad she's not my class you get an F regardless <laughs> so if god was so special and apparently this person works in criminal justice and within that area um if god was so special he wouldn't allow the world to become such a crazy place like we live in today as i work in my profession i hear criminals tell me god made me do it so god made you kill someone they answer yes but that's a, but but that is okay because god told them to do it did god tell the terrorists who killed a thousand people to do that too People need to realize that the world does not revolve around religion. It revolves around people. Everyone states how they are so religious, how God hates gay people. Well, look inside your churches, homes, etc., and see what goes on truly in there. If you read in the papers, you will see that people who believe in God also commit crimes. So why doesn't God judge them? Because they're straight? And then she concludes this way. I was raised Baptist. And I would never allow a piece of paper to dictate to me who I am going to believe in or what I am supposed to believe in. I will choose what I want and how I want it. I don't hate gay people regardless what a $5 Bible says. It's just a piece of paper that was written by people who I'm sure aren't perfect. That's the culture in which we live. This individual basically again saying, I'm Baptist, I'm a Christian, and regardless, 
This text doesn't mean anything because I can believe what I want, how I want. I can make it say whatever I want. And you know what really frustrates me as I go on within life is when I see people who profess Christ, who, who, who basically strive to maintain then a belief structure that is contrary to God's word at the same time, and yet in so doing, they deny the very God that wrote in the first place. I just don't get that dynamic as far as I'm concerned. You know, when it comes to the area of judging and judgment... The question is, should you do it? People quote all kinds of scriptures. This one person did that you shouldn't do it at all. On the other hand, there are people that say you should. But if you can't judge, and if you're not allowed to do that, how in the world do we do anything in our lives? If we're not allowed to judge, on the other hand, how, how can you exercise church discipline? Isn't that a judgment decision? How can you call a pastor at a church? Isn't that a judgment decision as you, as you analyze that individual? And I've just come to the conclusion that, quite frankly, we as believers need to be ready to answer individuals that throw a Bible verse at us in order for them to silence us or so they think we need to have an adequate answer for them. So with that in mind, let's turn to John chapter 8. Because in John chapter 8 is the passage that is utilized by at least one person within this letter. And we're going to be taking this in a step-by-step, analytical, in-depth way. And you're going to have to have your thinking caps on because we're really going to talk about what this verse is saying in light of the context in which it is set. And if you, at the end of this message, I should hope that you will have the ability to answer someone that is going to use this verse against you to quiet you and to shut you up so that you don't question the behavioral lifestyles and items that they have chosen to do within their life now the first thing you come to when you look at john 8 is this question is it part of the original text okay that's going to be the biggest question that comes out here i've come in my conclusion that i believe it should be part of the original text i mean it's broadly supported by manuscripts all across the western world now on the other hand there are individuals out there that we have to admit will come to the conclusion that it's not part of the original text but on the other hand you know what Every one of them will say that this story is very true to the nature and character of Jesus. They don't have any issues with that. In fact, if it was better manuscript authority, at least the way they look at it, they would have no problem including this because this, this, uh, this story and this situation is similar to other things that we've encountered within God's Word. So it's very true to the nature and character of Christ. Clearly, everyone agrees with that. On the other hand, I want to assure you, That if someone throws a verse at you out of John chapter 8, and they say, you know, let him who is without sin be the first to cast a stone, it's not going to do you a lick of good to say to that person, you can't use that verse, it's not part of the original text. They won't have a clue what you're talking about. And they won't really care. They're going to look at you as uninformed and say, I'm going to use it, it's in there. What do you got a problem with? You don't understand God's word yourself. Come on, you're going to end up getting in more of a debate and off the subject. So let's look at what it's going to say and how we can interpret it and deal with that issue. Now here's the key. Why was John written? Something we have to understand. You will also, you know, as you study this out, you'll see John, the gospel itself, was written to show Jesus as the Son of God. But I'd like to suggest to you that throughout the first section of this book, there's a sub-theme that is running throughout it that we need to clearly understand and clearly keep in mind as we approach this text in John 8. Now, to look at that, I want us to turn back to the Old Testament, to Deuteronomy chapter 18. And you'll need to keep a piece of paper or something there because we're going to go back and forth from the Old Testament and look here in Deuteronomy on more than one occasion. So keep your finger there. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 18, we're going to see a prophecy that was given. Moses wrote this prophecy. And in Deuteronomy chapter 18, you'll read in verse 15 these words. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your fellow Israelites, you must listen to him. Moses here in this chapter, in Deuteronomy 18, is giving the prophecy about the coming Christ. He is one that's going to be a prophet. He is one that's going to come, Moses says. He's going to be greater than me. And when he comes, what were they to do? Listen to him. Follow him. Listen to his words. Put him at the forefront. Put him at the priority. Now let's go back to the Gospel of John and see how this theme works its way up to John chapter 8. In John chapter 4, we have the story of the woman at the well, right? 
<coughs> our Lord is dealing with this woman and, and, uh, and, and talks and communicates with her. And notice what this woman says in verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Jesus comes across to her, what? As a prophet. She's beginning to see something. In verse 25, the woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And what does Jesus say? I am speaking to you. I am that person. The woman recognizes him as a prophet. He, then Jesus pointedly declares, he's the Messiah. He's the one that is to come. So immediately that theme is beginning to express itself here in the Gospel of John. Now let's turn over to John chapter 5. We find that Jesus here is dealing with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were ones, of course, that were arguing and always giving Jesus this difficult time. But notice what happens as this, as this chapter concludes in verse 45. Where Jesus, in speaking to the Pharisees, state this. But do not think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom your hopes are set. If you believe Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. So what's Jesus doing at this point? He has point blankly declared to the Pharisees and the people of that day that he's the prophet that Moses foretold of. So the woman in John 4 recognized him as a prophet. Jesus states he is that prophet. In John chapter 6, we find Jesus feeding the 5,000. He gets a great miracle, accomplishes that with a bread and a couple of fish. And what was the result of that miracle that the Lord did? In verse 14, after the people, John 6, 14 says that after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet that was to come into the world. So Jesus now not only declares himself to be the prophet, now the people are seeing that he's the prophet that Moses foretold of. Then in John chapter 7, John chapter 7, as our Lord does other miracles, and then there's division, and then finally he's having to deal with uh, the religious leaders of that day again. Notice what Jesus states as it begins in John 7 and verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, Rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Do you see what's working here in the Gospel of John? Jesus is coming across as a prophet. People are beginning to see it. He declares himself. People are now believing this is the prophet that was to come. And what did Moses say they were to do when that prophet was to come? Listen to him. Follow him. Now let me ask you a question. What do you think the Pharisees thought about that? Think they were happy? You think they were glad that this prophet was to come? I'm not sure they would have been too thrilled. And there's a reason why. Turn over with me to John chapter 9. <coughs> Excuse me. John chapter 9. We have the story here of the man that was born blind. The man that was born blind was healed by Christ. The Pharisees were all of a sudden questioning this individual. And wondering what's going on. And this, and, and this man born blind was a- answering the questions over and over again. And, and finally, the man gets frustrated and says to the Pharisees in chapter 9, verse 27, the man born blind who is now healed says this, I have told you already. You haven't listened. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become Jesus' disciple too? But the Pharisees did what? They hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciples, but we are disciples of who? Moses. Now, do you see the issue here? The Pharisees were one that followed Moses. But yet Moses said when the prophet was to come was to follow the prophet. Listen to him. Now if the people began to see Jesus as the prophet and Moses said to follow that prophet, what would happen to the Pharisees in religious society of Israel? Would they not fade into insignificance? 
Would anybody really care about what they said? Because if they state they're following Moses, but yet they're not accepting Moses' injunction to follow Christ, and they're refusing to follow Christ, their very existence is threatened. The Pharisees are not happy. They had to do something. They had to do something in order to establish themselves as the religious presence within the nation of Israel. And that sets the scene for John chapter 8. Because my friends, what we are finding here is the Pharisees were in turmoil. The people of the land were seeing and understanding that Jesus was the prophet that Moses foretold of. And they were to follow him. They were to listen to him. Their very existence, the Pharisees, was in question at this point. So what did they have to do? They had to expose Jesus as an individual that was not the prophet. They had to do everything they can that would show that Jesus was opposing their hero Moses, so they confronted him with a situation, a situation that they thought was going to corner him into contradicting a clear mosaic statute within the law. And the Pharisees were here testing Christ by conveniently using passages in Mosaic Code that is located around the prophecy of the prophet in Deuteronomy 18 in order to show that Jesus was not the prophet that was foretold of by Moses. So that puts the context of this in a whole different light than what you, are, what you tend to see. Let's read now in John chapter 8. Then they all went home, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, asking him over and over again, he straightened up. And he said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote in the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. All right, real briefly, in the first uh, two or three verses there, we find that Jesus is, uh, is now at the feast, uh, a special time, and he's appearing now before the people. He's in the temple courts, all the people are gathered around, and what we're going to just find Jesus doing is sitting down, taking the form of a teacher, and is ready now to teach them and begin to explain God's word and truth to them. Now, while he is doing so, the antagonists here, the Pharisees, enter into the scene. And the Pharisees come in and interrupt the teaching. And what we find here is that these individuals bring in this woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. She has no doubt about it. It's almost like there's no question that's being asked. She was caught breaking the seventh commandment. Okay? Now, immediately you have a picture here. You've got Jesus on one side. You've got the Pharisees also standing there. You also have the scribes that are here, as the text says, the teachers of law. And you have the woman that is there in the midst waiting for something to happen. The, here the picture and the scene is set. What is going to happen? And it's kind of convenient here. The Pharisees bring in the teachers of the law. Because the teachers of the law are also going to be there in order to interpret what Jesus is going to answer to make sure it's right. So they, want, they, so they have this whole scene set up now. This woman that is there caught in the act of adultery. The Pharisees say, teacher calling Jesus that, almost like done purposely to see what he is going to do so that they could clearly see and show everyone by his answer that he might be a false teacher, okay? And the question is, what's Jesus going to do here? Are you going to affirm the Mosaic Code in this manner? And that's what we're going to see. Now, before we go any further, I want us to turn back to Deuteronomy 17. Another key to understanding this text is found within what, the, what passages are going to be used by the, uh, by the Pharisees and also the implications of the Mosaic Code for going on here. Deuteronomy 17 says this. Beginning in verse 6. 
where it states, On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death, but no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. The hands of the witnesses must be the first in putting that person to death, and then the hands of all the people, you must purge the evil from amongst you. Now, the first question from this text is how many witnesses were needed? Two at least, okay, class. All right, and then once the decision was made, who was the first people to be involved in carrying out the punishment? The witnesses, okay? Now turn back to John chapter 8. Notice the Pharisees here say, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone a person. Now, who's the us? It is the Pharisees. If the us is the Pharisees, and they were to be the ones to stone the woman, that means the Pharisees were what? The witnesses to the crime. Do you see the point here? The Pharisees have stated very clearly here that they were the ones that witnessed this act. They had set themselves up as eyewitnesses to the sinful crime of this woman. They had caught her. The Pharisees then state there's a punishment to this. The punishment is death. No doubt about it. That's what should happen. We should stone her, right Christ? We should put her to death. Yes, that's what the Mosaic Law calls for. So here we are at this juncture. Jesus is the prophet that was foretold of by Moses. The people were believing it. The Pharisees would have nothing to do with it, so they resort to this tactic. Now, let me just state a couple of things at this point. Can you not tell by this time that this is clearly a setup? Can't you tell that? You see, the point in this story is not Jesus against the woman. It's not the Pharisees and the, the teacher law against the woman. It's the Pharisees and the teacher law against Jesus. This woman is a secondary aspect of this story. She's the pawn that's being used by these religious leaders, so-called, in order to get at Jesus. That was the concern here. She was merely, if you will, caught in the scene because the Pharisees concocted this whole event in order to set up so they could prove that Jesus was not the prophet that was foretold of. Now, we know this by a couple of things. Notice what it says in verse 6. They used the question as a trap in order to have a basis to accuse him. It was a trap. They wanted it this way. It was a clear-cut setup. The text tells us that, that that's what it was. Now, the other way that we know that this was a setup and the Pharisees concocted this scheme is in something that kind of is obvious but kind of just goes toosh right over our head because it's really interesting. The Pharisees, you would think, at least they come across this way, we're concerned about the law. We're concerned about the proper application of law. We're concerned about the Mosaic Code being upheld. Well, if that's the case, you stated that the woman was caught in the act of adultery. That means there should be Two people there, right? Where's the man? You know, back in my day, it says it takes two to tango, right? And that's the point. Why is the man not there, Pharisees? If you are so concerned about the application of Mosaic Code, then the man should be standing there too. But if you concocted this whole scheme, maybe you just conveniently allowed the man to escape. And now you just have the woman there because after all, you didn't care about justice. You only cared about making Christ out to be who he is not. Now, you know what? The Pharisees at this point, I am sure, felt that they had Jesus trapped. I mean, they've asked him a question. They presented himself with, a, with, with the situation and felt that Jesus was in a no-win situation. I mean, how are you going to re respond? I mean, if Jesus says, stone her, He's going to lose forever the, the, the name of the person who has love, mercy, and compassion attached to it. It's almost like the people would look at him in a very different light. Is he really a friend of sinners if he says stoner? And plus, on top of that, it would put him on collision course with Roman law at the time too because uh, a Jew could not put together and had no power in that structure to carry out the death penalty, especially for the crime of adultery. I mean, if Jesus says stoner, there's going to be a couple of major ramifications there. But on the other hand, if Jesus says, pardon her, 
let her go, then what he's going to be doing is actually not following the Mosaic Code in the Pharisee's mind. And therefore, if he's not following the Mosaic Code and breaking it, therefore, he's not the prophet that Moses foretold of. And you can see here the Pharisees wringing their hands saying, yes, we got him. Either way he answers, he's in trouble and we're going to win. They had it all planned out. They thought they understood that there's no way out of this situation. But they were not ready for the answer that was to come. You see, they kept asking Jesus over and over again, what do you say, what do you say? But they had an answer that was not ready to be handled by them. Well, what does Jesus do? The first thing we see in verse, in verse 6 is that he bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When the, the Pharisees kept on questioning him, he straightened up, gave him that phrase that we're going to look at in a moment, and after he makes that phrase, again he stoops down and writes in the ground. And you know what's interesting is that I think John's telling us something here that I believe the Pharisees understood, and the Pharisees began to realize that they were in trouble. You know, there's been a lot of things written, written about, you know, here Jesus stooped down, he started to write in the ground, and people go on to say, well, what was it that Jesus wrote? <laughs> and there's reams of information about, well, he could have wrote this, he could have wrote that, but you know what? The text doesn't say anything, does it? There's no emphasis here in the text that what Jesus wrote was important. The emphasis is on the fact that he wrote. And since he wrote, that is what should be focused on. We see the Pharisees are also going to respond to what Jesus said. So we need to focus on the text is that the fact is, is that Jesus wrote and what he said is the important things. So what is Jesus doing here by stooping down and writing on the ground with his finger? Is he doing something that's causing the Pharisees to think? Turn with me back to Deuteronomy chapter 9. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 9... We are now in the context of things with, uh, within the nation of Israel. And our God makes a very interesting comment in Deuteronomy chapter 9. And we're going to be looking at that in verse 10. And I'll get there. Where it says this, The Lord gave me two stone tablets that were inscribed, How? By the finger of God. Jesus stoops down and writes in the ground with his finger. The Pharisees, I think, begin to tremble because it's almost as if Jesus is saying something like this, just by this action. He's saying to the Pharisees, you want me to give you an answer based on the Mosaic Code? You presented me with this situation. You presented me with this woman caught in adultery. Now you're asking for me to interpret what should be done in light of the Mosaic Code. Well, I'm going to give you that answer in light of the Mosaic Code. I will give you clearly what should be done. And I will have no problem doing so. I can do it. You will get the answer. We'll be in line with Mosaic Code. And I can do it because I wrote that law. That sets him up for the answer that's going to be given. He wrote the law. And the code giver now is going to give the answer in accordance with that law. Are you ready, Pharisees? I don't think they were at this point. Because then Jesus gives that famous answer. He that is without sin, let him cast, let him be the first to throw the stone. Now let's divide this into two sections. Section 1, let anyone of you who is without sin, section 2, be the first to throw the stone. We're going to take section 2 first. Does not Jesus say, throw the stone? Does he not say that? Yes, he clearly does. In other words, he is stating there that the proper interpretation of the Mosaic Code for this situation is death. Throw the stone. Who were to be the ones to throw the stone? The witnesses, right? And the witnesses were the Pharisees. So he's telling the Pharisees, throw the stone. The punishment is death. But, section number one, he adds a qualification. The qualification is this, without sin. Now I ask you, what does without sin mean here? 
first off, let me tell you what it cannot be. It cannot mean that you have to be sinlessly perfect in order to do this. I mean, it can't be. I mean, if you think that, that uh, you have to be sinlessly perfect, we got some major problems. Because how in the world can we do anything and make any decision in life about looking at behaviors, lifestyles of other individuals unless it involves us making a judgment decision? And since no one is perfect, none of us can state anything is right and wrong. And therefore, we should let everybody live any way they want to and not condemn them in any way because after all, we're not without sin. We can't say anything bad about anybody. That's crazy. It cannot mean you have to be sinlessly perfect. If I'm talking to a person about this, and they bring this up, you know, and they well, let him who's without sin be the first cast stone. I would ask them, what does it mean? And if they say, we well, have to be perfect, and the, the, the easy answer is, are you perfect? I mean, what are, you know, maybe I might go on, are you married? Do you have kids? What did you do? Did you discipline your kids? You did. How could you do that? I mean, how can you discipline your children? Let him who's without sin cast a stone. You shouldn't say anything about your kids and let them do whatever they want, act what they want, be out till all hours of night. Why not? We can let them do whatever they want, right? Because none of us are perfect. Well, that's different. Are you married? You know, what if what if someone what if someone killed your spouse? Would you go into the judge and say, you know, judge? The Bible says, let him who's without sin cast the first stone. You can't issue a sentence here because you're not perfect. I mean, so you just need to let him go, and that's okay. I mean, the judge would look at you and say, what have you been smoking? Are you nuts? I mean, come on. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. None of it makes sense. It cannot mean that a person has to be perfect in order to render that type of decision. So what is Jesus doing here? I'm convinced that Jesus has put a limitation, if you will, Because he, as the writer of the code, is identifying another item that is found in Deuteronomy chapter 19. Deuteronomy chapter 19 states another requirement, and that is a requirement for the witnesses. And Jesus goes here in Deuteronomy chapter 19, and beginning in verse 16 states that the witnesses have also requirements. I'm going to start reading in verse 15. Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense that they may commit. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If a malicious witness takes a stand to accuse someone of a crime... The two people involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office at time. The judges must make a thorough investigation. If the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against a fellow Israelite, then do to the false witness as that witness intended to do to the other party. The rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid. And never again will such an evil thing be done among you. Show no pity, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. What is the requirement in the Mosaic Code for witnesses? You have to be an objective, non-malicious witness. Jesus here is telling the Pharisees, look, throw the stone. That's the proper punishment. But what he is doing is calling into question, are they a valid witness under the code that they are proclaiming to follow? Now, when you look at your text, you're going to see in there, Uh, The word maybe in some of your translations, mine has in verse 16, if a malicious witness or false witness, probably in a lot of your translations. False witness just does not mean one who is a liar. That is purposely doing and and giving testimony that that is totally not true. That is one aspect of a false witness, yes. But you know, it's interesting that word literally means a false witness is a one that promotes wrong. And misuses the law for their own selfish purposes. And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They were misusing the law. They were malicious. They presented a situation with uh, wrong attitudes, purposes, and motives. They were the ones that, that calculated to the best of their ability a scheme that they could put together to try to get at Christ. They were proving themselves to be malicious. They were not objective. They didn't care about the Mosaic Code. The only thing they cared about was Christ. And getting at him and disproving him as the prophet. They failed the test as a valid witness. He who is without sin, the qualification is you must be a valid witness. 
Now, do you remember what it said in the book of Deuteronomy? If you were not a valid, non-malicious, objective witness, what was the penalty? You remember it? The very same penalty that they proposed would now be upon them. Huh. They didn't fulfill the requirement. They were now trying to test Jesus, to trap him. They were totally unconcerned about justice. Therefore, in failing the test, they were now open to the very same penalty of stoning that they proposed for this woman. Well, what was the outcome of this as a result? What was the outcome? Notice what it says in in the text. Those who heard this began to go away. One at a time. They left. They didn't even try to argue the case, did they? Because the problem was the Pharisees, they thought, had Jesus in a no-win situation. They felt that they had him trapped. But instead, now they're the ones that's in a no-win situation because they've been exposed as a non-valid witness and they left for them to stay and defend themselves as a non-malicious witness when it was very clear that they were, the same punishment now would come upon them. They could not do anything. So the best thing that they could do was keep their mouth shut and leave. So they all begin to withdraw. And now what happens? The woman is still standing there only with Jesus. So I want you to focus in on a couple of other things that again just uh, will cause us to think. Jesus then says to this woman, is there anyone left here to condemn you? No one, sir. Jesus said, I don't either. I don't condemn you. Go and live righteously. Now, let me ask a crazy question. Jesus is God. Do you think Jesus knew what happened to this woman? Yeah, he probably did. Why did he not issue his own judgment? Could he not have done that as God? He could have done that, right? However, how many witnesses were needed in the Mosaic Law? Two. Jesus was only one. He followed the Mosaic Law to the nth degree. He did not issue his judgment because he was the only valid witness. The Mosaic Code needed two. That is why Jesus says, I don't condemn you. By the way, did Jesus forgive her? You will like to think so because that's the character and nature of Jesus, right? But does the text say anything about that? The text is silent. We do not know. Jesus then tells this woman, live righteously. Did the woman repent? The text is likewise silent on that. We will only know in heaven. Did she live righteously? Did she repent? Did she follow Christ? Did she believe in him? We will only know in heaven because the text is silent on it. My friends, this whole statement here in John chapter 8, it's Jesus against the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus trying to be made to look at as not the prophet so the Pharisees can look at, him, look at themselves as the status symbol of religion within the nation of Israel. A, set, a scene that was set up by them to disprove Jesus and Jesus then turns the tables on them and proves that they were not qualified in order to be a witness. And now they're under the same death penalty that they proposed. That's what this text is all about. When you come to the area of judging and judgment, it's very interesting to me when we say, are we to judge, are we allowed to do that? You bet your bottom dollar we are. This text at best does not preclude it. And this text at best says that if you're going to be and issue that judgment decision, you better make sure that you are qualified. And you know what's amazing? That's what the Bible teaches. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 6 real quick. Galatians chapter 6, where Paul now is talking to the people at Galatia. And in chapter 6, verse 1, notice what he says. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, then any Tom, Dick, or Harry can go and confront the person and talk to him. Oh, God, that doesn't say that. 
Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you know, don't do anything let, because Jesus said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And since you're not perfect, you can't say anything bad about anybody at any time. Just let him go on. It'll all work out in the end. Don't bother. Paul doesn't say that either. If someone is caught in a sin, you who are qualified, who live by the Spirit, do what? Restore that person with a gentle spirit. And at the same time, watch out for yourselves so that you won't be tempted. Paul is saying that if someone has a lifestyle, a behavior that is sinful, we are to point it out with the goal toward restoration, with the goal toward getting their lives in line with what God's word demands and says to There is nothing wrong with that when approached with the right attitude and the right spirit. He calls for us to do it. Well, you might say, Chris, well, that's fine. What about Matthew 7, 1? I mean, Matthew 7, 1 is a very straightforward verse where it says, judge not that you be not judged. What are you going to do with that verse, Chris? Come on. You know, what does it mean? John, Matthew 7, verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. And what's interesting when you look at that, when you look at that verse, people ignore other things that Christ say within that chapter. Because in Matthew 7, 1, while he does say, do not judge or you too will be judged, Jesus himself says in verse 6, Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs, which he's referring to human beings at that point. And then in in verse 15 of the very same chapter, Watch out for false prophets. Well, if Jesus calls people dogs and hogs and false prophets, isn't that a judgment decision? Yes, it is. So what's he talking about when he says in Matthew 7, 1, don't judge that you be not judged. He's got to be talking about the motives and hearts of individuals. We do not judge the reason behind why people do things. Why? Because we don't know their heart. Only God does. And as a result, only God can enter into those territories. And as a result of that, we've got to be careful that we can make our decision based upon the objective data that we can see because we don't know what's going on on the inside of that person. Judging and judgment. Something that we should take and look at seriously. Something about myself I'll share with you. Uh, as we conclude this and kind of do an illustration in this way. Um, I, I, to a certain extent, like movies. Fun to watch, kind of mindless activities. And yes, I'm kind of a unique guy. I watch chick flicks with my wife. Oh, Hallmark chick flicks. Oh, my goodness. The thing is the same model every time. If you really want to get your wife upset with you, you record it on the, v, on the however you do it, VCR, whatever. And, you, uh, and then you point this out because it's the same thing every time. Man and woman meet. They fall in love. Something then happens at approximately one hour and 30 minutes into the show and you stop it and you point it out to her. And sometimes I've nailed it right on the money. One hour, 32 minutes, and 10 seconds. That was a fluke, but it happened. And she just gives you the icy stare. Why do you ruin the movie? Because it's the same thing. Something happens. Commercial break. It comes back. One hour and 52 minutes. They make up. It's amazing. And then at one hour and 56 minutes, it's, oh, we kiss, we make up, the show ends. Oh, everybody feels great. It's the same thing. You know, I prefer, quite frankly, more realistic movies like Rambo. <laughs> I mean, I, and plus, I'm still trying to get them to get the two together. I mean, have a, have a good show like Romeo and Juliet meet Rambo. I mean, can you imagine the possibilities? Two people fall in love, everything's going well, then an evil dictator captures them, puts them in two remote jungle locations in two separate countries, and Rambo, in a minute of two days, overthrows two countries, reunites the lovers, they kiss and make up. That's money, I kid you not. (laughs) I'll never hear the end of this. But anyway... I I enjoy certain movies, but I never was one, much to my kids' chagrin growing up, that could buy it and watch it over and over and over again. Because I figure once I get it, I've I've already seen it. I don't need to keep seeing this on more than one occasion. It's just, just not me. But in every movie, there's a scene that just sets it apart. 
that I could watch over and over again because it's just cool. And sometimes it might only be a 60-second thing. But to me, it just sets the pace for that movie. One of the movies that I enjoy seeing this section in is called A Knight's Tale. Now, A Knight's Tale is kind of a crazy little story. It's really, a, 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 to a certain extent, a comedy, but it was just clean. It was good. And basically, the story was about a person who would be jousting in tournaments back in the day. Now, the rules of that day was that only royalty could be in these tournaments. Only royalty could only joust. No one else was allowed. Well, there was an individual named William. And he was not royalty, but he, through a variety of events, got into these tournaments, and he was good. He started winning. He was winning all over the place. And what he had to do then is forge papers showing that he was royalty so that he could participate in these jousting events. Well, he's all of a sudden winning this man that comes out of nowhere. Everybody's wondering about him. And then in the middle of the show, a seemingly insignificant event takes place. He's at a jousting tournament. And everybody is going out, and, and the people who are in the event, there's this one person that everybody withdraws from before the match because they're not going to fight this individual. It come to find out that this person was Prince Philip, the future king of England. And you don't joust the royal family because you don't want to hurt the royal lineage, right? Well, William is there ready to face this guy. They're trying to get him to withdraw. And all of a sudden, boom, he kicks his horse and the horse goes down the field or down whatever it's called, <laughs> goes down the field. And then Prince Philip, his eyes light up because he really wants to joust. And he, then he proclaims them, give me my lance, you know, in a British accent that I can't do. And he, he then takes off and jousts with this individual. They meet their swords or whatever. Their spears collide. Uh, everybody is okay. And then at the very middle of the court, midfield, midcourt, whatever it's called, they meet. And he's revealed as Prince Philip. The crowd is aghast. You, debate, you, you jousted with royalty, really? And Philip even said to William, you even went with me knowing who I am. And William said, yes, it's not in me to withdraw. And Philip said, mine either. And there was a profound respect that was in bond that developed between those two individuals at that time. Now, what we didn't know when you first are watching the movies that seemingly insignificant events set you up for the very end. Because at the very end, William is found out. William is not royalty. He's been illegally competing in this tournament. And he's there in the gallows, right, with his, or what, stockades, whatever the things are called. You know, with your arms, your head sticking out. Everybody's throwing lettuce at him. I'm thinking, bring on the salad dressing. There's just a ton of stuff there. But all this stuff being thrown at him. And, all, and it's just a bad scene. It's going to end really bad. This man who was the star of the show has found out he's not royalty. And then all of a sudden, there are three cloaked figures in the crowd. And the three cloaked figures step out, take off their garments. It's Prince Philip and his two royal bodyguards with humongous swords. The crowd is silent. He goes up to Philip and basically says, you know, you bestowed a favor on me. Uh, or Philip goes up to William and says, you bestowed a favor on me what? because you jousted. Now it is my turn to return the favor. Prince Philip then stands up and he says... Release him. And the man releases him. And then Philip turns and faces the crowd. And the future king of England now speaks. The most telling words in this whole movie. He states this very clearly to the crowd. He may appear to be of humble origin. But my personal historians have discovered that he's from an ancient noble tribe. Let me stop there. Philip is a flat-out liar. He is not telling the truth at all. It is a falsehood. It is wrong. It is incorrect. But the king is speaking. Philip then goes on to make the line that makes the movie, in my, in my estimation. He may appear to be of humble origin, but my personal historian has discovered he's from an ancient noble tribe. This is my word. And as such... It is beyond contestation. Oh, I love that line. The king has spoken. It is not to be contested. 
And if you want to be so stupid, people, to do it, I got these two royal bodyguards with these big swords here. It'll be the last thing you do in your miserable existence. Now, you know what? I like that line for one reason. Would be to God that believers, when God speaks, would have the same type of disposition. Because when the King of kings, Lord of lords, speaks, and he has given it to us within his word, it doesn't really matter what you think. It doesn't really matter what you think is right or wrong. It's what God says. And what God has said, the only infallible ruler, Lord of lords, sovereign of the universe, what he has said, my friends, that is what is beyond contestation. You should not be questioning it. And when you come to the point of where we see believers that are accepting belief structures that are outside of the parameters of this word, it doesn't matter what the politics of they are. It doesn't matter what they think. It's what God says, and that's the standard. And we should not be permitting reinterpretation of passages to justify their position. My friends, when it comes to judging and judgment based on God's word, it is our duty to judge all as wrong all conduct that violates God's moral standards. It's our duty to do so. It's our duty to judge all doctrine to see if it contradicts God's word. It's our duty to confront a Christian who's living in sin so that we can help them. And it is our duty to protect the purity of a church by judging members who sin and deny to those who have a bad lifestyle to teach false doctrine, leadership positions in the church because God says we should not do it. It is our duty... When people are living a life contrary to God's word, we're to confront them. We are to talk to them and be like Jesus in this passage. Implore her, live righteously, live a godly life. There's nothing wrong with that if it's done in the right attitude and in the right spirit. Father, thank you for John 8. And I trust we'll see that when looked at correctly, in light of what you're doing, that... Indeed, we have a different take on how we approach things. God, there's nothing wrong with us upholding the standards that you have set within your word. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with us handling our lives and and trying to get people to repent and come to Christ if it's done the right spirit of imploring them to turn to the Lord. And Lord, I just pray that you'll help us to understand, that you'll help us to apply this text appropriately and cause us, Lord, to learn and grow to be more like you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon presented at Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.